Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by Grant Martzolf, Ryan McDermott, and me, Elise Lonich Ryan. I'm an instructor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and a faculty fellow with the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. Beatrice Institute is supported in part by Henny Jewelers. Since 1887, Henny Jewelers has provided the Pittsburgh region and beyond with incredible engagement rings, fine jewelry, and luxury watches. Learn more at hennyjewelers.com. That's H-E-N-N-E jewelers.com. My guest today is Michael Sacassis. Michael is an independent scholar focusing on technology and culture, and his regular newsletter, The Convivial Society, explores the history and philosophy of technology, along with media, ecology, and theory. He earned his MA in Theological Studies from the Reformed Theological Seminary and was a doctoral candidate at the University of Central Florida, where he studied the relationship between technology and society. Previously, he directed Greystone Theological Institute Center for the Study of Ethics and Technology, and he currently serves as Associate Director for Educational Programming at the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. His writing has appeared in The New Atlantis and The New Inquiry, and he's been cited in The Atlantic Magazine and The New York Times. And technology theorist and writer Nicholas Carr has referred to him as, quote, one of the most penetrating and stimulating critics of digital technology, probing its social, personal, and moral consequences. Michael, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You and I are talking on January 22nd, and normally I don't mention dates, but our world is changing so rapidly, and part of those rapid changes are reflected in our digital landscapes. And here in the United States, just a few days ago, we witnessed the inauguration of a new presidential administration, and two weeks before that, we witnessed via TV, via our devices, an attempted coup, an attack by an insurrectionist mob on the U.S. Capitol. And about a week ago, you wrote an essay entitled, The Insurrection Will Be Live-Streamed. And bleak as it might seem, I do want to start here because I think in that essay, you're grappling with some of the questions that many of us are right up against at this moment, namely our disintegrating, if not already disintegrated, sense of a common life common good, capitulation to lies, and the nature of truth, and importantly for you, the migration of a deep culture from a digital and media environment into the quote-unquote real world. And I want to start by thinking about what constitutes reality in these digital spaces. And I'm using that word space very particularly, because I know that you have thoughts about it. What's at stake for a concept of reality when we refer to the digital as space? 
So, yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, I find it uh, useful, at least for me, to start with uh, some debates that at the time seemed much less fraught. um, And it was um, around 2011 and 12, which seems like another era in the progress of our our digital age. But it it was about the the language of of reality with reference to digital media. And uh, one uh, theorist in particular, a sociologist named Nathan Jurgensen, popularized his uh, critique of what he called digital dualism, uh, by which he meant what he thought was the prevailing view that people tended to see what happened online as somehow unreal or or perhaps better yet detached from what we would sort of call real life. And and so we would speak about our IRL friends in real life friends and, and our online friends. And it was um, a, a useful way to sort of distinguish these two activities. Uh, Jurgis has tirelessly critiqued this idea, uh, reminding us uh, that what happened online was real, right? that there was no sort of ontological barrier between digital activities and what I sometimes just, uh, by way of default, call analog activities to uh, distinguish the two. And it seems to me, as I thought about these events, uh, how this, these recent events were being covered, that we, we hadn't quite yet, and the we here is just sort of the generic public discourse, hadn't quite yet figured out how to speak about the relationship that uh, what I end up calling sort of digitized relations have on non-digitized relations or, or the, the kinds of institutions and relationships that predated the rise of digital media. The language of place or space often creeps into this as well. And so we have this idea of going online, or even the the phrase cyberspace suggests some kind of virtual place that we enter into, which I think also makes it easier to to think of it as detached from, quote unquote, real life. Some of this, I think, just had to do with the the practice of getting online in the early internet years. It was very much a discrete activity. You sat down on a laptop, you had a tenuous modem connection, and it very much felt like you were going to a place that was distinct from uh, the world in which we inhabit and, and you may have had an anonymous moniker by which you identified yourself. Social media hadn't yet tied our offline identity, as it were, so closely to our online identity. And so all of that now, uh, I think, proves to be a very inadequate way of framing the relationship, because as I mentioned a moment ago, the, the boundaries are very porous. And and yet, uh, part of um, my own conversations with Jurgensen involved an effort to nonetheless recognize that something different was happening in the online spaces. And I think part of what I at the time felt was um, uh, a shortcoming of, of the digital dualism critique is that it, it was fine as far as it went uh, to overcome this initial bifurcation of, of so-called real life from online life, but it yet didn't offer us the categories that were sufficient for us to understand what exactly was going on. I tended to simply collapse the two into one without at the same time reckoning with the distinct characteristics of digitized relations, that is, relations mediated by digital media. And so I tried to stress it's not a matter of of some kind of pure offline relationships contrasted to the corrupted relationships that we have online. All relationships to some degree end up being mediated. Even the face-to-face encounter is sort of the mediation of the body as the medium of of the two persons communicating. And then it's it's a question then of understanding the unique affordances and drawbacks and temptation or promises of the particular medium that we have in mind. So all that's sort of a long-winded way of saying that when a lot of folks were saying, oh, these insurrectionists were, were just LARPing, to me it suggested an inability to take seriously what was happening online, the kind of identity formation that happens online, how that does in fact bleed into our common public life. In another iteration, uh, when I 
earlier had attempted to kind of grapple with these issues in an article for the New Atlantis. I defaulted to the language of the digital city and the analog city, borrowing loosely Augustine's categories to sort of suggest that there are these two sites of moral identity and spiritual formation, and yet the the people formed in those two cities, as it were, which now I'm not so keen on that language because of the, the way that it brings place into our imagining of that of that relationship. Nonetheless, that these two cities sort of occupied the same world. They coexisted. And it was in, the, in that coexistence, the inability to see the difference between these two communities and how they had been formed, that many of our problems in analyzing our moment arose from that, that inability to sort of grasp the, the distinct nature of those two communities. And in a sense, I'm sort of updating that perspective for these circumstances. It's really fascinating because in not being able, or I should say, in drawing such a hard line between what happens online and what happens in the real world, it actually affected a collapse that now we don't know how to distinguish clearly in language. And one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is you always are reaching for the right term. Language is another form of mediation that we are all engaged in. It's totally insufficient, but yeah. it's what we've got. Right. Right. <laughs> there were a lot of things in your answer that I want to spend our conversation unpacking, most particularly, I think, this idea of mediation and what's ultimately a relationship to objects and an objective point of view, a phenomenological point of view, which we can maybe work our way towards that. But let's stick with mediation and, and mediated relationships. Is that a language that you would like to see as opposed to this language of going online or digital spaces? And, and if so, if that is something that's more applicable to your way of thinking, how does that work? What are digitized relationships or media relationships? Yeah. So I don't know how elegant the language is. I and mean, I think a lot of times we default for, to certain words in, in part because they, they are simply elegant um, and, and useful. And, and I do think it is interesting, I should say this, it, it is interesting that we did reach for the language of reality and unreality in initially trying to grasp what this new sphere that we have opened up in, in the digital world was, because it seemed different enough from what we were doing here. And maybe in some sense, even unwittingly sort of gesture towards the critical importance of the body for fully constituted reality. In any case, my own thinking about technology has been influenced by a variety of different schools of thought, but one of them that is relatively prominent is um, a school of thought in the philosophy of technology that is known as post-phenomenology. Adam Selinger, uh, Don Eide, and Peter Paul Veerbeek, the Dutch scholar, all sort of run in this circle. And, and I found their work useful. And the focus here is on this question of mediation, the, the, the medium that comes between you and I Right now, for example, we're meeting over Zoom, with, which has become such a familiar setting for so many people. It is not that our conversation now is any less real than if we were in person, but it is different. And so the, the idea of mediation is to understand that. And, and of course, I inject sort of Marshall McLuhan into this, who has also been influential for me. The, the medium itself it plays a formative role. And this is uh, a way of counteracting the idea that the medium is an indifferent vehicle of communication, which simply conveys the message that essentially remains the same. And then the medium becomes sort of just invisible conveyor of information. But to speak of mediation as ways to recognize that the medium plays an important role in shaping the communication itself. And there are some obvious ways 
ways of, of understanding this. If, if I'm on a phone call, then I have no visual of the person I am speaking with. And so I begin to rely much more on my sense of hearing. And all of the work of communication falls back on voice. And of course, the particular words that we use but also the inflection of voice, uh, the tone, the silences, the pauses, etc. Here we have, in, in our case now, the body in a sense does come to some degree back into focus, although imperfectly so with these you know, weird quirks where if I try to lend my eyes to you by looking at my camera, then I can't see you and vice versa. And so that even though we see each other, we, we don't have that same fullness of presence. And, and I do often go to that phrase, fullness of presence, to characterize the difference between a fully embodied interaction and one that is mediated, whether it's it's you know, an old-fashioned phone or video conferencing. And writing, even to go back to writing itself, is a form of mediation. It limits what we can say. It offers certain opportunities. It calls upon us to refine certain skills. To write, to communicate well with only words on paper, say, requires a precision of language that is sometimes difficult to attain. It requires us to master certain conventions of writing, such as punctuation, in order to make sure that we convey the one meaning we want. And so it heightens some tendencies, it uh, obscures others, it has a, an effect on what we can communicate, and even on the sort of emotive response to what we are communicating, it speaks to the sort of the cooling effect of writing and print, and that is something that media ecologists uh, have commented quite a bit on. And, digital media in bringing us not necessarily together in place has nonetheless brought us together in time in a way that has sort of reactivated some of the agonistic tendencies of communication that is happening face-to-face as it were. So not sure that I've fully addressed the question, but yeah, I think the language of mediation is useful for, for the way it helps us to think about what is happening. And then the, the kinds of questions that I think it invites us to ask and the awareness that it raises about our use of these various mediums without even casting aspersions on any of them. Because so often, I think we want to rush to say this is bad. This is a bad way of communicating. This is a good way of communicating. I'd be content for us to simply recognize the differences and then aware of those differences, match the, the medium, I suppose, to the moment, to the occasion, or at least be more temperate in our understanding of, of the kind of limitations that we're struggling with together. That's also rich. And your point about time is well put because that medium has built into it a temporal lag. Yes, right. And the way I speak, and frankly, the way I run these podcast episodes is very different from the way I sit down and write an essay. And there's an immediacy to my speech now, or at least I understand it. I feel it as an immediacy in a way that I don't when I'm sitting down and trying to write something by hand or type it on the computer. And I I think that one of the big issues as we navigate a lot of mediums, a lot of interfaces, whether they be Zoom or Facebook or Instagram or the ways in which newspapers are online, whatever it might be, there's an atemporality to it. There's a a coincidence of content and a coincidence of form. And it seems to me like one consequence of this is we lose context. And context is important for that sense of presence that you were speaking of, especially presence over time. So I wonder about your own thoughts about certainly embodied presence, but how do we establish a sense of stable presence over time in these media environments? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, interestingly, as you say, this is the first thing that comes to my mind is the fact that sometimes 
the problem we face is, is that there's too much stability assumed. And, and what I mean by that is that I'm thinking of how digital memory gets weaponized. And this is, you know, one of the features of digitization that, you know, again, as far back as, as the 1960s, Marshall McLuhan highlighted, is that it, it creates vast stores of memory. And I, for me, it all, memory has always been such an interesting vector through which to understand media technology for the way that it supplements human remembering in good and bad ways. But the the fact that anything that I wrote, say, on a Facebook post 10 years ago is to some degree accessible to someone who is searching through my old posts and wants to kind of figure out what I have said over the years, that there's a sort of permanence to that record that then very often gets brought up, I should say justly and unjustly, in the present, often with the assumption that there has been no change in the person, right? That there's no, I'll use this word, which we can talk about later, there, there's been no narrative development in that person's history, right? And our memory becomes just a, a database people can dip into and weaponize against us, as I, su- I suggested. And so that there's there's this assumption of a, a continuity of, of an identity over time that I think the, the social media profile especially tends to create. So, and I wonder too about forums where people maintain a presence for a long period of time in such a way that those who have also shared that forum can begin to develop a rich understanding of that person's history. And of course, you know, online as in offline life, there's always a possibility, rare as it may be, that, that someone is, is putting on a great act that is not in fact true to who they are in, in some important way. But putting that possibility aside, there, there are individuals that I've known for many years strictly through Twitter say, or interactions on, on my old blog. And I certainly feel that I have a genuine sense for who they are, right? Um, I would very much like to meet them in person. I'd very much like to sit across the table from them and, um, and share a drink or whatnot. But even though we've not had that opportunity, I still don't hesitate to call them friends uh, and, and genuine friends, not simply online friends. And so the, the a coexistence in a bounded space, especially as the boundedness that allows a certain degree of intimacy to, to safely unfold. So I think we are all very cautious in very open public spaces, uh, digital spaces, digital venues, uh, or whatever we want to call them, knowing the way in which we are opening ourselves up to uh, bad faith actors, those who are interested in, in trolls, those who are interested in combating whatever it is that we have to say for the sake of their own uh, social media points, there's that risk. And so to find spaces where, and I, and I think this has been happening, I know friends that use Slack channels for this, or uh, Discord has become popular in some circles for this very thing, where the, the boundedness allows a certain degree of intimacy to unfold. So I, it, it is possible, I think, to find a, a place or a, again, there I am struggling for that language, trying to avoid the language of place, but a, a way of, of interacting with others online that over time can be rewarding and have its own satisfactions. I've seen this with my own students. So, you know, I taught all last semester online. All my classes this semester are online. The Discord that you mentioned, they want to do the Discord chat and I stay out of it and that's their space. But I've also seen it happening even our classes are over Zoom. So we have our vocal interactions, class discussions. And then there's the chat happening, which I have now taken to encouraging. Before, (laughs) I could not multitask. I could not manage both. 
but now it's actually an opportunity to have a chat moderator, another student who's responsible for the chat and then kind of is the mediator, I guess, to use our language, but between us. So I see this happening it's a way that we're changing and we're talking about ways that we're coming together and trying to be together when physically in this pandemic, we can't be together. And I'm thinking also, you've written quite a bit about Arendt's use of the table as metaphor, and Ivan Illich uses this in terms of hospitality. So I'm wondering if we can spend some time thinking about hospitality and th this metaphor of the table. Like, Where does it come from in Arendt? What was she trying to accomplish there with that metaphor? Yeah, I think what, what struck me about Arendt's use of the table is her way of using it as an example or even a microcosm of what she calls the world. And she distinguishes between sort of the earth, which is sort of the biological reality, and then the world by which she means sort of the, I think of it as sort of the human built world, uh, the world of artifacts and, and literally of things. She uses the phrase common things at, at various places. Um, and then again, she's, she's writing in the 1950s. This work is, is published in the 1950s. So it's, a, it's our you know, pre-digital reality. And it's mass society that she has in mind as she's thinking about these, these matters. But she thinks of the table as something that both gathers and separates, which I thought was an interesting thing. It, it, we come around the table, but the table also keeps us apart, as it were. So it creates a community and preserves our individuality within that community. Before I wrote about it, uh, I had always been struck by that metaphor and always sort of kicked around in my in my mind. And then finally, you know, put some words to that in terms of writing about the loss of common things, you know. And, and this is, I think, one effect of digitization as a medium. So Arendt was concerned with the loss of of common things because they served as a kind of anchor in a common reality, right? She paired the common things with common sense. And we tend to mean, as she says, you know, a common sense is just this idea that there are these taken for granted assumptions that we all share. Whereas, as she suggested, it historically has been something a little bit more than that. On the one hand, it was either the common testimony of our senses. So when we bring the whole of our human sensorium to bear on the world, the common testimony of those senses, but then also the sense that we shared in common with our neighbor because we were both perceiving and interacting in the same place. So much of life now is mediated by our interaction with a screen of some sort or another. It is interesting to ask, where are the common things in this scenario? What are the common things? The interface, in some respects, becomes the common thing, right? What I share with with so many of my friends online may simply be the Twitter interface or the Slack channel interface. But we've put ourselves at an interesting remove from the situation where we might live in the same neighborhood and occupy the sort of same civic spaces and our senses would testify to the same realities together. We would appear in these spaces and validate for rent. It's a validation of our own individuality, our own sense of identity when it is affirmed by others. Illich, interestingly, makes much the same point that, that the gift of the other to us is a sense of our own identity as I, we see ourselves reflected back in, in their conversation with us. We are reflected back to ourselves. And so the digitization of relationships certainly scrambles those dynamics in interesting ways and I think it's probably safe to say that in some cases in unhealthy ways. Uh, and some of this has to do with the particular architecture of social media platforms. But that, I think, is an important insight, that the loss of a materially shared space may ultimately have sort of epistemic consequences for how we come to know the world. And more than one person has at least they've posed the question of whether or not something like 
the, the rampant conspiracy theorizing that is now so characteristic of our public sphere, that is not nearly as fringe as, as one would hope, whether or not the conditions of quarantine in a time of pandemic have not heightened that or, or made that much worse in its final outcomes or its, its the outcomes that we've seen thus far. And that at least strikes me as plausible along the lines of how I borrowed Arendt's reasoning to sort of talk about our own loss of a table in a sense, right? We've you know, rent things of mass media and mass society as having taken the table away from us and collapsed us into ourselves. And I think digitization has perhaps done something similar. I want to hold on to this idea about how it might change us epistemically and how we understand ourselves, because that point of illage is that the gift of the other ultimately gives us back to ourselves in, in the best sense, this renewed way, this restorative way, a chance for us to reconcile ourselves with ourselves. And I certainly see this in my life, in my family relationships, and in my friendships, that they give back to me a version of myself that I can live with <laughs> and that I can live up to in a way. And there's an article that was written by Rebecca Mead for The New Yorker a few years ago called The Scourge of Relatability. And I teach literature and I give this to my students because so often the measure of whether a text is good or bad is, is it relatable? And usually what they mean by it, and Mead's argument is what people mean by it today, is that I see myself in it. I get reflected back in this text. It's not the kind of relationship that was originally built into that word and that I think we've been discussing here, uh, a kind of bond, a kind of kinship something that both gathers and separates us, that forms meaningful connections as well as meaningful distinctions. So as I'm hearing you talk and I'm thinking about this article, it occurs to me there's something perhaps productive in thinking about a rent's table and then the metaphor of the mirror and reflecting how I get reflected back to myself in these media environments changes the way I think about myself. And we see this in Zoom. You know, I can cover my image, but I don't typically look at myself when I'm having a conversation in person. So do you think that our self-knowledge, leaving aside the kind of inhospitable collapse into self, but just a basic sense of who I am in the world, is being shifted by the spectacle of ourselves on these interfaces? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, in, in writing about Zoom a while back, just to comment on your observation about seeing ourselves on the screen, I had the split screen myself, and it changes the I-thou relationship to the I-me-thou relationship. There's this image of you that is now kind of haunting the conversation. I, I think certainly so. On the fly, I wouldn't be able to do this justice, but McLuhan often reflects on, on the narcissus effect of media, almost this sense of seeing ourselves reflected back in the media that we use and having an almost paralyzing consequence. So I think there's certainly something interesting about that it's more interesting because of the algorithmically mediated nature that the interface is not neutral, right? The social media interface isn't just relaying tweets back to us or sending us the Facebook messages that our friends have posted. It's, of course, actively selecting what we see. And I think most people are generally aware that something like that is going on. But then the algorithm, if it is optimized for engagement, as we've heard so much about over the last four years or longer now, people have been paying attention, it is reflecting us back to ourselves in a very distinct way, in a way that can certainly feed some of the worst aspects about ourselves, close us in. And Eli Pariser came up with this uh, term, filter bubbles, which has received an interesting amount of, of pushback. I, I still want to 
say that I think his core idea is sound. In that you know, essay I wrote recently, where I tried to sort of think about how our online relations communities, if you will, kind of take on this character of hypercharged cultures because we have this reinforcement mechanism where we get approval, approbation, we optimize what we say in order to get that feedback that is affirming and gives us a sense of importance or whatever it is that we're craving, just simply attention in a very basic sense. And so we get optimized in a way that reflects what we think the other wants from us, but the other is here being mediated by algorithms that are not so much reflecting the other as they are reflecting this underlying value of engagement. And we are being optimized for the network in many ways. So the identity formation is happening and it's happening, I think, again, in ways that are accelerated or, you know, I use the word supercharged, you know, somehow augmented in, in its power and intensity and immediacy by agents that are not simply me and my friends online, but me and my friends as they are mediated by the architecture of the platform and, and the underlying algorithms, etc. So that identity formation is definitely happening and it's being warped and pulled and stretched in ways that I'm not sure most of us readily understand and, and that I would readily confess is happening to me even as I am aware of it. You know, I think sometimes the idea that you are aware of this almost becomes a kind of numbing effect and the temptation is to think that somehow one is above it. I think the awareness is important but that can also become a kind of spell that suggests that we're more insulated from these effects than others but I'm not sure that's the case. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you as I hear you talking about this, is this apathetic numbness that can come upon us. And it comes upon us in these digital landscapes, but sadly, how many times after a mass shooting have we heard people say, I desperately want this change, but I am so numb to this happening by this point. So this pattern of intensity, spectacle, hyper-reality, as you said, followed by the crash of apathy, which can burn out into cynicism or maybe even despair in the worst cases, it does seem to also be accelerated by our moment right now and the interfaces that we're having to adjust to. I, I know that you wrote about structurally induced acidia. I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't. every uh, yeah. time I hear that word pronounced by someone, it's in a different way. Right. So I'm acidia. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm a Cedia. Nice uh, to meet you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. No, we should do that song, right? You say tomato, yeah, I say right. tomato. Yes. Yeah, there we go. Um, that'll be our remix. Yes. It will get, you yeah. know, no hits. Yeah. But anyway, um, Acedia, Acedia is, comes out of an ancient Christian monastic environment. And those monastics referred to it as the noonday demon. And it's something like, listlessness. It's something like total disengagement. It's close to despair. The temptation is to end up in despair, but also just our inability to escape ourselves in some way. We have no respite from ourselves, which seems to be necessary, is causing this. So there's a question in there, but I, I guess, how would you describe it? I mean, you wrote about this. How would you describe this structurally induced, like our feeling of the world comes from structure. It's not just created ex nihilo. Right. I think I was thinking of what we've come to call doom scrolling, especially. This will be a gesture that I'm making, so it won't be quite visible, obviously, to listeners. But for a number of years now, it just has struck me that, you know, this has been the 
the, the gesture of the age, which is the upward scroll, right? And, and the, the upward scroll through the infinite feed. And as a gesture, it does almost suggest this kind of listlessness, this sort of apathy. And especially, perhaps, again, accelerated by quarantine or augmented by quarantine, by times of social isolation, by so much of our life now being transacted through our digital devices. I can testify personally to the temptations of just doom scrolling, which is to say you're scrolling without any clear sense of purpose, out of a kind of compulsion inundated by news that is both near and far, relevant and not. And that particular piece about structurally induced acedia, I speak of it as structurally induced because it's induced by these online habits, by the structure of our infinite scroll timelines and the ease with which we can make our way through them. It's not a universal effect. None of these are. But one effect is coming to feel as if you can do nothing, right? You are inundated. And it's a sense that we are desituated and we're desituated actors, right? If something happens in front of me, I may immediately know what to do, or I can think about, I can take action, or even in my neighborhood. There's very little I can do in the moment about the multitude of global crises. And this is not just to say the crises of global scope, like climate change, but simply all of the independent things that are being fed into our newsfeed from all over the world at any given moment, but both trivial and serious and severe. And I wonder, this is purely speculative, of course, but I wonder that the degree to which we get involved in Twitter outrage cycles about absolutely inane and unimportant things is simply because it is something we can do something about, which is just to, again, enter into the, the discourse as it were, whereas, you know, there's probably nothing that we can do about the, the typhoon in the Philippines, except, of course, send money to charities, etc. But there's only a limited amount of that that people can do, and yet they're inundated by so much information about the world that I think that one effect of that, especially, perhaps especially, uh, for a person who, who is sensitive to this, is to feel as if they are they are overwhelmed and, and are unable to do anything other than simply scroll. You know, I, I commented recently about this online or, or to some, you know, something related to this, and Alexis Madrigal reminded me of um, uh, Zygmunt Bauman's idea of liquid modernity and and the idea that you know we we are we live in a space in which anything can happen but nothing can be done, and I thought that was such an apt way of capturing this particular sense. You know, you're you're doom scrolling because in a sense you think anything can happen and, and, and can be terrible, and, and there's a kind of morbid curiosity almost I think, especially in 2020, about what will be next, and so anything could happen, but you can't do quite you can't quite do anything about it. Um, now I, I do want to suggest that that that's a feeling that one ought to resist ultimately. You know, in, in, in some, we, can't do, we can't do something about everything, but we can do some things about particular problems. And, and I think part of what is happening online is that we're so inundated by so many different problems that it's very hard for us to emerge from that and say, this is the one thing that I will focus on and, and the one thing that is important to me or my family or my neighborhood or my community, et cetera. So that, yes, uh, you know, acedia is a temptation uh, to enter into a kind of despair or distress or, or worse yet, a kind of nihilism, right? Uh, the shrugging shoulder emoji, I think, is another one of sort of the characteristic symbols of our age. The LOL, nothing matters, um, you know, phrase or attitude is also something that I think is, is characteristic of this. Uh, and, and in some respects, I think this will be the, 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 this is, well, I suppose what I want to say is that it, this is a, will be a growing temptation. You know, I, I think we, we forget the degree to which a kind of full-fledged digital world where kind of connectivity is ubiquitous is, is a fairly recent phenomenon. You know, you know, I've made this point in, in various um, contexts, but even if we think back to the advent of the commercial internet in the early 90s, 
we're, we're still not quite 30 years removed from that. But then if we think especially to the, the point in time where the Internet and digital connectivity was with us always at all times, uh, which is the post-smartphone age, and, and that point of saturation is probably not even 10 years uh, behind us now. So that, you know, we millennials that, that you know, I'm a generation uh, X, I was born in, in 1977. And so I have a very clear line in, in my own biography about, you know, when I first logged on to AOL, actually it was first Prodigy much before that, but, you know, seriously AOL. And then, you know, everything subsequent to that, of course. But, you know, millennials certainly, I think, came of age at a time where that line was a little further back into their youth. And so that distinction is, is further blurred. But what we now sort of refer to as Generation Z, um, this is a generation that came of age in a much more profound way. It's digital natives, a word that's now much older, right? Um, and it's a world in which not simply computers were ubiquitous, but, but online connectivity was ubiquitous. And so I, I do wonder if the, the kinds of attitudes that we now sort of associate with uh, very online or extremely online uh, personality types have to this point sort of reflected the millennial experience. And, and we see, I think those who are attuned to these things, uh, see perhaps especially on, on TikTok more than in other social media platforms with regards to the, to the popular social media apps, a different sort of sensibility emerging, a different sort of uh, of character type, as it were. And, and one that I think seems to gravitate more towards um, you know, not not a nothing matters, but but an attitude I can't I have not quite thought enough about to be able to sort of name, uh, except to say that I do see it has a different a different sort of, of again sensibility than what we have I think, grown accustomed to as an online personality. And and my my concern is that it's one of its variations is a kind of nihilism, which is you know I think obviously dangerous and morally dangerous, um, you know, for both. You know, society becomes generalized, but for the individual as well. But I, you know, I don't. I, I hesitate in making that a very strong statement. It's more as a kind of question, uh, at least, that's forming in my mind. Well, I think what you're getting at here is how are we going to engage in meaningful action in the world? And I'm using all of those terms, meaningful action and the world, in a very Arendtian sense uh, to keep with our conversation, but. That was obviously her biggest concern, action, <laughs> um, and, and how we get from thought to action. And in your writing, I often, this is something actually I learned from you and I say to myself now, when am I and not just where am I, but when am I? Uh, and that has really located me a bit more. So Arendt, you know, was very informed by Greek philosophy and the oikos and the police and the Oikos, as we all know, is a yogurt brand. Um, just kidding, um, but that it's that too. Yeah. But no, of course, it's the it's the household, yeah. the household economy, deeply related to the police, the civic sphere, the the political sphere. To put it rather bluntly, not very elegantly, and these things informed a Greek sense of citizenship identity, but also in the arts. I mean, a play like Aristophanes' Lysistrata is raunchy, but it's totally based on the relationship between oikos and polis. And I think what I'm hearing in your response is that even those terms may not be adequate to us anymore, or they may not function in a way that we can easily recover them. I know that you've thought about the digital and the local instead of private and public 
And so I just wonder if we can start to build some bridges between how we engage in these environments that are clearly mediated, that we're all participating in, and how we make meaningful action in the world that is just, that is oriented toward others, so that, again, to follow Illich, we might have ourselves reflected back. Yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, um, along with the, the private sphere of the household and, and the, the public political sphere, so to speak, uh, what Arendt saw was the rise of the social in, in the 20th century, the, the realm of mass society. And, and I, you know, I think then perhaps what I've been trying to suggest without even realizing it is that now the social, to the social, we can add the digitized as, as this other way of constituting these relationships um, that likewise impinge upon the initial sort of private public divide that uh, was characteristic of um, you know, probably just pre-modern life, generally speaking. And so to, you know, as, as much as Arendt tried to sort of theorize what the, the rise of the social would mean for the political and the private, uh, I think what most of us in some respects are trying to do is, is even if we don't think of it in this term, uh, in, the, in, the, in these terms, is to theorize the significance of the rise of the digital in, in terms of these existing configurations of, uh, of social and public life and private life. One, one curious aspect for me is the way in which it has blurred the distinctions amongst all of those different spheres uh, in which, you know, the, you know, so much of our public discourse about digital technologies has revolved around the question of privacy, which, you know, can be approached from so many interesting angles. But, you know, it, it is interesting to me that so much of what once would have counted as as private in in the, in the modern world and even to some degree in, um, in the pre-modern world, we willingly and, and gleefully sort of offer up into public light um, as just part of our online performance of the self um, and other boundaries, most notably perhaps of late, the, uh, the boundary between work and home, which has blurred to almost non-existence. First, because the, the devices that we that a certain class of workers does their work on uh, became shared, that personal device and, and the work device were, were one. And were brought home. Uh, read a recently uh, interesting article about this recently, focusing on, on the uh, advent of the laptop as being you know, one step along those lines. And of course, work from home is a just another layer of that. And then the blurring of these boundaries. But this is another sort of point that I've derived uh, to some degree from Arendt: is this detachment of the individual from any context for the sake of some larger force. Um, you know, I'm thinking here of, of the origins of totalitarianism, and uh, Arendt talks about the, the superfluous individual, the individual that hardly matters in their individuality and in their, in their distinct, distinctiveness and uniqueness, but simply are, are lifted up out of their contexts into either the stream of, of history or the stream of progress, these large sort of kind of almost we might um, not quite accurately call meta-narratives, uh, which... Arendt associated with uh, communism on the one hand and, and Nazism on the other. And so I, I thought along those lines, you know, so much of, of modern technology in a um, sort of Huxleyan rather than Orwellian way invites us to break down these boundaries, to detach ourselves 
and and it, it's offered to us, um, you know, with the promise of flexibility and convenience uh, and ease and speed, efficiency. But what it in fact has done is is to just sort of tear down these boundaries that used to mark portions of our lives out as realms of relative tranquility or even, you know, in, in a, I, I think of this theologically in terms of the Sabbath, where the Sabbath marked out a, d- a division between, we might say the sacred and the profane, sacred and profane time, or we might say between, you know, the, the time of, of worship and time of labor, even thinking about the, the dissolution of in this country, uh, in the United States, of, of blue laws over the years, right? You know, as a child, I could still remember stores closed on Sundays. At one point uh, in recent year, a couple, couple years ago, I think I went to a supermarket because I needed diapers for my um, toddler in the morning. And um, and while I was there, I saw that there was, um, I think there was some beer that was on sale. I thought, well, I'll pick up some of this. And, and the cashier told me, well, it's too early. You can't buy that. Uh, and, and I say had that happen <laughs> the beer not the diapers though sorry everyone. <laughs> and, and that reminds me of how we've, we've blurred these and, and in my view we've blurred it largely for the free movement of capital right so the the end result of this is simply that we can be ever at the ready to consume and to produce for the market um, and how so much of that because of social media has become even just sort of the production of data which then gets you know it becomes a, such an important um component of, um, of the modern economy. And so it's, it hasn't been for our sake that we have been liberated. The liberation has been a false liberation. And that blurring of lines that digital media, I think, has, has affected, contributes to, ultimately to that pattern of detaching us from these limiting contexts. But, but they were limiting in a way that was life-giving. You know, there, there were, of course, limits that you know, whenever you know, I talk about limits a lot because Wendell Berry and Yvonne Lynch and all of that, and and I think they're essential. But you know, I always feel like I have to guard myself against, you know, the any kind of romanticizing of the past, certainly, and also to acknowledge that there there are naturally limits that that were imposed by prejudice or by racism that ought to be overcome. So so not those sorts of of, of limits, oppressive suppressive limits, but other kinds of limits that maybe are more germane to our human condition that in the modern world we have seen chiefly as obstacles to be overcome uh, by the mastery afforded us by, by science and technology, uh, but that rather our, our flourishing as the sorts of creatures that we are had to happen within the constraints of, of these sorts of limits rather than by transgressing them. Wendell Berry is extremely eloquent on, on, the, on this point. Um, and this was so important, I think, also um, to Yvonne Illich's work and, and why I think it has resonated so much with me. And that may be one thing to recover, one idea to recover, uh, is the idea that there are certain limits that we ought to embrace for the sake of a depth of human experience, a depth of relationship, and and to regain the possibility of action uh, in the world. So I don't know if, if I tried to bring that back to that initial question. No, you did. Um, and I think that that idea right where you left it there this that recovering a sense of uh, benign limits and um, because as you yourself said there are obviously limitations that were put on people that need to be erased that that creates the condition for action and i i will use an example that someone like me who uh, studies poetry and teaches literature is very likely to trot out at this moment. And that's the sonnet, yes, right? right, <laughs> right. Is, yeah. um, 
you know, form that actually lends itself to a universe of possibilities within a particular metrical structure and number of lines. Um, and you're also making me think to actually go back to an earlier moment in our conversation, we started talking about data and big data and databases and narratives. And the, I think that there's an analog between that and what we're discussing right now, because you mentioned too that really what we're also capitulating to is a capitalist model that says excessive growth and excessive consumption is good and should be the norm. And part of what you're saying, and I agree with you, is that we would do well to resist that and just to swallow it wholesale. And so the database, capital D, as you've written about it, in many ways subscribes amorally, because it's not a moral actor, to this idea of limitless growth, total retrieval, to use one of McLuhan's terms that we talked about, and radical atemporality, whereas narrative does something very differently. So I wanted to give you a chance to say what you think narrative is capable of, that the database is not. So a couple of times I've written about this, um, some data scientist has pointed out to me that technically the database does have a structure, which is correct. And I had recently the term data lake suggested to me as something closer to what I meant, uh, which is a technical term to suggest a more unstructured gathering of data. But So I'll make that caveat and, and, and grant um, to anyone who, who has uh, you know, some qualms about how I'm using the term that, that I'm using it in a, in a maybe a looser way than, than the, the data scientists may allow. But I'm also using it in a way that comes out of some debates about digital media um, in the humanities. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, of an exchange between Catherine Hales and um, Lev Manovich and, and this rise of database studies with regards to uh, literature specifically, actually, is where you know, these, at least my source for these terms originally comes out of, and, and a consideration of what you know, electronic literature might look like and, and how it foregrounds the database, et cetera. So my thinking along these lines essentially comes out of, again, my trying to think about my own experience. And I think that for me very often, this has been, you know, I've tried to make this a, the, the source of my analysis. It's just try to, to understand what is happening to me. What am I feeling? What am I encountering? And so on any given day, take January 6th, the, the Capitol insurrection. You know, I happen to check Twitter during the day, which is always a mistake. Um, but in, in this case, I, I'm suddenly sort of inundated by, not by narratives, but by what I would classify as simply data points, a video, another video, commentary, images, and these just begin sort of flooding and accumulating. Some of these, uh, in fact, already right in, in the, in, as these things are developing, you know, more or less contemporaneously unfolding on my feed here, some of the images quickly are, it's apparent that they are not from this event itself. Um, you know, I was struck by one image of, uh, of you know, supposedly, ostensibly, the crowd raising across on Capitol, on uh, the Capitol grounds. Uh, but then I did happen to catch somebody saying, hey, that picture that's making its way around, that's actually from something that happened last summer, dot, 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 dot. But, but this is part of the problem, you know, as I see it. The, the speed with which the database immediately grows, in, in, and, and apart from any narrative, and the idea, you know, the other narrative here is simply that, you know, we, we imagine a time where, I may have read about this in the newspaper 
maybe the day after the event. But already it would have been mediated for me into some narrative structure with causes and events and consequences or some sort of underlying plot of the day, etc. And that narrative, of course, is a tool of meaning-making. We, we take the, the undifferentiated structure of reality and we look for the meaningful elements of it and we draw it into a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And what it does for us, it gives us a sense of meaning. It, it, it imports meaning into it uh, or, or lifts it out of the context, whatever the case may be. But that database doesn't give us meaning. Uh, it, the meaning is not preset, and it is for every person uh, on, their, on their own initiative to run through the database as they see fit. Narratives then even just become part of the database. Right? So even an attempt to create a narrative, whether it's the narrative of events uh, as uh, someone on the, on the far right might have constructed them for that day, or the narrative that's, that's being presented in a more mainstream media outlet, uh, or now just those are just two poles and in between there, there are so many possible perspectives. We know that those are simply what we might think of as, as one person's way or one group's way of running through the database. But, but if, if we are, feel the import of, of the database experience, we instinctively know that there are other ways to run through the database. And so I think that, that e- even when there are small N narratives, little narratives, what is precluded is the possibility of what we might think of as sort of a consensus narrative emerging to which the, some large segment of the population will say, yes, this is what happened, right? And so we, have, we are existing in this sense, I think, in a quite literal way, in, in alternative realities. There, there was, of course, one reality, but the way in which that reality was mediated to people in countless different ways through the database experience of, of online of digital technology, it has generated countless competing narratives. There have always, of course, been competing narratives. You know, there have always been people who doubted that men landed on the moon. But you know, I, to some degree, I think that obviously we th- tend to think of those positions historically as, as rather fringe. But I think the splint, it, it, we can speak more of a fragmentation of of perspectives or, or narratives, and even of not just of, of perspectives, but of uh, experiences of reality. Because it's not simply that we are arguing, in the way I put it in that particular essay, it's one thing to argue about the meaning of the moon landing. It's another to constantly be having to litigate whether it actually happened or not. And so the level of, of debate or interpretation has sunk down, further down into that basic level of facts about what actually happened. Right, so that there are presently, I'm sure, a non, you know, a, um, a not insignificant number of people who still believe that the insurrection was the work of Antifa, right? Because this is something that was immediately sort of spun in order to kind of shape how some people were going to, you know, it's a way of, of bringing people through the database in a certain way. And I think this is why you have the proliferation of, you know, what, what I would maybe think of as, um, you know, current day sophistry is a mastery of the database and a mastery of, of the way of manipulating people through the database in order to get them to where you want them to be. It's not a genuine effort to make sense of the reality, right? So in some respects, we're still in that kind of, um, you know, Socratic and, and sophist conflict. Um, and, and bad faith actors, of course, have capitalized on this reality. But I, I try to go out of my way to stress it's not just a, a factor of bad faith actors. There's a, a much greater likelihood that anyone who is recognizing these effects, who's just subject to this way of consuming media, 
is much more likely to have doubts about aspects of the story that is being told to them on whatever particular medium or news channel or whatever sort of official source of information, narrative source of information that they tune into uh, simply because of the awareness of the multiplicity of perspectives and uh, and events that get left out. This just goes to the sort of the collapse of the legitimacy of what used to be sort of the public arbiters of uh, official narratives, if, if you like, you know, whether it's the press uh, or government agencies and whatnot. Yeah, I think you've said we may not be post-truth, but we are post-trust, which seems um, on the nose. And I think, too, you know, as you mentioned, we've sunk down to the level of facts, just having to constantly identify what is real, what is actual, that we're not even making it up to what does this mean. And that cycle, that's exhausting too. That's another structure that we're caught in that's burning us all out in various ways and is allowing bad faith actors to come in and burn it up. Um, and I, I am struck, I'm thinking here, um, they're emblematically in the Renaissance, logic was presented as a closed fist and rhetoric was presented as an open palm. And persuasion, I think, is possible in narrative, but the database, as you said, has repetition built into it. And a friend of mine, one of my best friends, Corey Sparks, he's a digital humanist, and he's written about discontinuity in pedagogy. And one of his ways of rethinking this is iteration, a constant renewal that can kind of use the digital, but also not capitulate to this big data, basically, um, that contains persuasive force and human agency as part of it. So I wonder too, and here's another connection that I'm drawing, someone like Vladimir Nabokov, he was really big. He, he liked being a capital A author. And his big thing was, I built this house, the novel. And you, reader, lowercase r, will walk through this how I tell you to. And you think you're free here, but I set this up. The, the walls are there. The doors are closed. You go where I say you go. And there's something so threatening about that. And he was a genius, but he could also be a jerk. And, you know, there is a way you want to push back and say, don't tell me what to do. But I think that there's also a way that it comes back to, but what a beautiful house he built. And how do we negotiate the forms of narrative with issues of control, with wanting to have our own sense of human agency activated in particular ways in the world? Take that where you will. I'm <laughs> yeah, not sure. Yeah. I just had all this constellation right. of ideas. Yes, no, so. that's good. Yeah. I, and, and, and I want to say, even to go back to your observation earlier, which uh, um, you know, I think it was very apropos about the form of the sonnet with regards to limits. Um, that that to, you know, I've, I've I've always thought that the writer, whether the poet or or the novelist, right, the the one whose task is is artifice with words, uh, but also the musician and even the athlete or the dancer, right? They are aware that these limitations are actually uh, the phrase I love from Wendell Berry is sort of uh, inducements to elaboration. And, and that's one way of thinking about that. And, and then, yes, I mean, the, you know, this idea of the novel is, is, is constructed. It, I mean, it, indeed it is, right? I mean, it's, you're, you're drawn into a world and 
you're made to walk through it in a certain way. I mean, suddenly um, Michel de Certeau comes to mind and, and his discussion of the practice of reading is sort of actually being kind of rebellion against that. And, and the reader can make his way through the text as he sees fit, much the way that someone can, you know, the walker walks his way through a city in the way that he sees fit. But there are patterns laid out for them. But then there's a choice as to how we navigate those. Um, and so there, it is possible to, to retain a sense of agency there. So that, yeah, I think those are they're all very interesting connections to make. But we do want, right? I, I think we, we desire, part of the reason I, w- I would want to resist the pro- post-truth framing of this, although I, I get where it's coming from, and obviously you know, sympathetic to some of the concern that leads to the use of that term, is that the, the people that are most likely to be accused of being post-truth, at least very many of them actually are very ardent about the truth, right? They think they hold the truth and they see the truth where others don't, right? And so I, I think we, you know, we can speak of at least I would feel comfortable speaking of sort of an innate human desire for truth, for meaning. Narrative reflects that, you know, obviously even in the way we tell our own story as, as individuals, uh, you know, when asked, you know, who we are, very often we resort to a narrative about ourselves because that's how we sort of construct, uh, you know, um, uh, Alistair McIntyre writes about the, you know, the unity of a life is the unity of a narrative, right? And so there, there are genuine impulses here that I think need to be validated in some respect. We require authorities to some degree. Right? I, I'm always amused by the, the thought that every individual citizen can build up a, a repertoire of positions from scratch without relying on authorities, essentially. Now, the, the question for us now is that the, you know, I think that the, the traditional sources of authority have fallen on hard times. Uh, both I would say both deservedly in some respects, um, but then also as a function of this changing media landscape. And and I'm not sure that I quite know the way out through that, right? I, what I certainly see are obstacles to a wide-based consensus narrative emerging that, you know, garners the support of, of the majority of Americans. You know, even... You know, these old, older standbys, like sort of the, um, of the mythic story of the American founding and, and, and the providential arc of American history, all of these obviously have fallen by the wayside and, and now are just, they're not sources of unity, they're sources of disunity. So the prospect of, of regaining what I increasingly sort of think of as this post-World War II heyday of mass media era sense of of unity and national purpose and national identity, uh, which even, of course, in that day, as we know, was already very exclusionary, um, but but controlled the the public imagination. I don't see a road back to that. There will be a proliferation of of smaller, whether they be online or offline. However, we think of these uh, more local, perhaps is one way of framing it associations that, that become meaningful in a person's life, um, that become sources of authority. You know, the rise recently, I've heard somebody commenting on, on the rise of the genre of, of story that has to sort of try to make meaning of some trend on the internet. They were thinking of the sea shanties in particular, and, and all of these little think pieces about sea shanties, and the person said they're, they're just fun, right? But the, the reason I think we want these kinds of essays and articles, uh, or at least why people think we want them, 
or, or even why I think people might sign up for my newsletter is that they're just looking for somebody that they have come to trust to help them make their way through the, the madness of the world. You know, some of the you know, uh, heartwarming you know, emails that I sometimes get are along those lines that, you know, you've helped me make sense of things. And I, you know, am humbled and frightened by that to some degree. But I understand it, and, and I think that makes sense. And, and so you have this proliferation of, of you know, influencers, if you like. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want that term, but um, people who are being, you know, we others gravitate towards communities in which they feel at home, whether that's sort of a base of, of, of K-pop fandom or, you know, some other sort of niche group that's not very niche, but that will have a proliferation of that. And, and that has some, um, those have you know, merit to them. You know, there's, there's a value in, in, as the old line goes, you know, finding your people online. But there are costs, and that is that we, to some degree, become more insular. Um, you know, those, that fragmentation of vision and purpose and perspective on reality doesn't become very problematic until these groups you know, find themselves in the same public sphere, right? whether it's in the same city or in the same nation trying to, you know, make a, a basic structure of governance work and to say nothing of, of problems that are global in scale. Well, I'm going to try to bring us together here for the final leg of the conversation using everything you just said and bring it, bring together some ideas. You know, with regard to your newsletter, I share that sense that other readers have expressed to you that there is a kind of comfort in your presentation of the material. And I think part of it has to do certainly with narrative, but what I would call is kind of a lyric sensibility, actually. I mean, maybe that's just me personally, because I'm much more comfortable with an essayistic, poetic, lyric connection of seemingly disparate things that somehow make meaning. And I I find that you're writing brings together things that aren't often united and makes a meaningful whole of them. And that relates to an idea of how to move forward collectively when we are not having shared consensus. How are we going to do that? And I wonder, and here's my leap, and we'll see if it works, (laughs) if we can land it. I actually wonder if one way to move forward is through memory and through mourning, because mourning is not nostalgia, neither is memory. It is not a retreat to the past. Let's go back there and do it like we did then. But it is acknowledgement, and it's acknowledgement that is repetition with a difference, you know, in the Freudian sense of mourning, that we can kind of relive it and hopefully if we, you know, overcome it, move forward. And I'm thinking about this too, because the night before the inauguration, our new president, Joe Biden, and Vice President Kamala Harris oversaw a national mourning ceremony for the 400,000. I sadly suspect that by the time this episode airs, we'll be at 500,000 dead from COVID. And I did write down what he what he wrote or where he spoke, I should say, it's hard sometimes to remember, but that's how we heal. It's important to do that as a nation. And you've written about mourning and many people, especially during this pandemic, have 
been so upset that there has been no national mourning, that our funerary rites have been very disrupted, that people are severed from their loved ones as they are dying. But there's also just no language for our collective memory and mourning. Do you think that the digital environment, as well as our sense of life in the world, that, that Arentian world structure on artifacts, is capable of acknowledging our past, mourning for it, and mourning for what we've lost and the lives lost, and maybe on that foundation moving forward. Yeah, you know, that's right. The It was at 100,000 deaths, I think, that I, that right. I wrote um, uh, what I titled the, you know, the, the public that cannot mourn together does not exist or something. I forget exactly how I put it right, but uh, I don't know. You know, it, it was, it, it seemed obvious, you know, to me that I think there was a, a desire for that kind of acknowledgement of the, the trauma that we have been through and that so much of that, of course, was suppressed for political purposes over the past year. So in, in essence, I want to say yes. I want to affirm, I would want to affirm the necessity of, of rites and rituals. Um, you know, I have a, you know, a, con- a conflicted relationship to questions of, of civil religion, you know, on the one hand, you know, I, I want to sort of, with my Anabaptist friends, think of it as sort of an kind of idolatry, and and yet there is something about having a language around which a community can gather and make sense of, of, of the world together. I don't know if I shared this anecdote in the newsletter or not, but I was once on a flight uh, in which a passenger died, and I was on my way to the UK, and uh, it was very close to, to our destination. The flight was diverted to, to Ireland, um, to Dublin. And the person, I believe, had passed by the time that the plane landed. Um, what struck me afterwards is that before we took off again, nobody else was disembarked but before or deplaned. But we, we, one of the flight attendants came on to sort of explain what had happened. And, and I would not have wanted to be in his shoes uh, in that moment in part because it was clear that he had no public language to speak about what had happened. So it was a very awkward, very sort of euphemistic, very, uh, just simply very awkward moment. Um, in part, I think, because the, the kind of language that, say, uh, a common religious community might have in order to speak about what has happened and to uh, affirm one another through it and to make sense or meaning of it was simply not available to that person in the context of this flight of strangers. And I think that, you know, maybe that's also part of our problem. We, you know, we lack, uh, and I, again, the lack is understandable and trying to repair the lack may cause more damage than not. And I think this gets back to a lot of the misguided nostalgia and and yet the, there is a real uh, loss that is a consequence of that 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 is a, is a public even sort of the traditional language of the american civic religion is no longer people are no longer fluent in it uh, it has fallen into disrepute and and again for for reasons that are understandable and so an ability to remember I think is central and to honor and to mourn and to have a language and rights in which to do that are essential to our, to, to the, the sustaining of a social body. And digital media is interesting in this regard because as we spoke earlier, it in some respects creates this 
uh, hypertrophy memory, this memory that is uh, unlike anything we've ever had to, to be able to recollect, you know, there's much more to be said about that. And I, I would certainly want to keep thinking about how to reactivate that kind of remembrance and, and certainly that kind of mourning. Yeah. I wonder, this is the thing that to me is weird and scary about AI, which will have a perfect memory. And there are so many times when we wish we could remember things and the pain of not recalling or seeing someone that we love not recall. So I don't want to diminish uh, loss of memory at all uh, or see it as a somehow laudable or good thing. But actually being able to mourn that we have that limitation, that we cannot recall, that things are lost to us. As we finish our conversation, do you do you have any recommendations for how we might cultivate not only our practices in our digital environments, but also we've thought, thought so much today about these either or situations or we're in one place or we're in another, how we might think more productively or something that you do to help you differentiate and kind of be in two places at once while at the same time differentiating between them. So this is always, a, you know, <laughs> the, the, I feel much more adept at describing our situation than in prescribing how it might get better. Uh, I, and I, right. Solve our yeah, problems. Right. <laughs> that was the question. <laughs> um, and I certainly didn't take it that way, but, but of course we want to think about how to, um, how to move forward uh, productively. One very concrete practical thing that, that I do is I simply don't have a smartphone. This is a luxury I recognize. It's not something that everyone is able to do, um, but that I, I have found that helpful to me to, to draw some of these boundaries to allow me to you know, live outside of the, the stream, as it were, that you know I mentioned only in passing and, and not as a kind of prescription for everybody, but something that I found useful for myself. Um, but also maybe re restoring some of these these boundaries. Right? I will also mention in passing, though, that this, this tension between memory and forgetting that you just alluded to, it seems to me that there's something very vital there. We, it, to speak of it in almost in a, in sort of the, you know, the language of, um, of a certain theological or you know, memorial tradition, it's about rightly ordering how we think about Remember, rightly ordering our loves, rightly ordering our remembering, right? It is possible to remember too much, and it is possible to remember too little. You know, your center is named for Beatrice, and so I'm reading, uh, leading a group here uh, through the Divine Comedy. Uh, we're doing Paradise this, uh, Paradiso this semester, and at the end of Purgatory, you know, Dante has to pass through both Lethe and Unoe, that is the river of forgetting and, and one that restores memory. And so finding that balance, Derrida has a, a lovely line along these lines, uh, along, along the same uh, trajectory about how uh, the Greeks, a certain spring in, in Boeotia, another word that I never know if I'm pronouncing right, uh, there was a spring of, of forgetting and remembering, and, and people were supposed to, to drink from both. And I think that we obviously are not negotiating that very well. So there's, there's that. At, at some fundamental level, I think that we, we require virtue. You know, I think about the, the kind of prescriptions for media literacy that have become a little, I think, inane at this point, uh, you know, about checking your sources and, you know, making sure you follow up to make sure the thing you're sharing is, is true. I think that that's all fine, only if the person cares enough about the truth to, to do it, right? And, and I think that's why it misses its target. There's a, 
a measure of epistemic humility that is required of people of generosity, of magnanimity, you know, all these very ancient words, right, that, that we use to describe the virtues or to name the virtues. We cannot do without them, right? I, I've always resorted to T.S. Eliot's line about, you know, the desire to build systems so perfect that no one will have to be good anymore. And, and so that, that, that hope will always fall, uh, prove, you know, prove disappointing. We, we require virtue. And, and so that's, you know, that leads, of course, to the question of moral formation, the communities in which that happens and raises its, you know, its own set of issues. Um, and I do think also that attending to the world carefully with care and patience, we, we are feeling, I think, all of us, you know, exhausted. You mentioned exhaustion a, a moment ago. And, and, I, and I've thought that the, sort of the arc of digital uh, media bends towards exhaustion. Right? We're, we're just exhausted by the pace at which it makes us operate, by the inundation of information, uh, by the affective overload right, that we experience. And so we somehow need to find ways of, of renewing ourselves rather than constantly exhausting ourselves. You know, if we will, you know, sort of plugged into exclusively digitized relations, uh, we will we will exhaust ourselves. And so we need to figure out a way of of not, you know, what I'm suggesting here, I guess, is not um, the the digital detox retreat <laughs> that costs you a thousand dollars or more, right? Uh, because so often I feel that that's just simply a way of catching your breath, only so that you can re-enter the same environment. You know, I recently was revisiting Jacques Ellul's critique of, of what in the 1950s was called technical humanism, what he called technical humanism, uh, you know, and thinking about the rise of sort of the center for digital or, or uh, what's, what is it, humane technology and sort of this call for more humane technology. And, and Ellul's simple point was that this is really just the application of technique to the human person so that they might continue to benefit the operation of the larger technological system. You know, I think of wellness apps and mindfulness apps and all of that along the same lines. Instead of, of changing the environment that requires them, we just simply use them in order to remain in that environment. And so I don't want to come off as if that's what I'm suggesting. There's obviously structural change that needs to happen. There's obviously change that needs to happen at, at, at sort of the level of legislation, the level of community organization. There are so many interlocking dynamics here. But until that uh, systemic change happens, it seems to me we can't simply not do anything uh, for ourselves and for our families and our friends and our communities. And so attending to the non-digital world, to allowing ourselves to be immersed in it, uh, to recovering the value of silence, um, you know, I think especially, I think within the Christian tradition, perhaps especially in the Catholic tradition, that there is a, 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 a recognition of the value of silence, not even a spiritual sense but, or a moral sense, but just in, in, a, in, a, in a bodily sense. You know, we are operating in an environment that our bodies were not made for. And so becoming attentive again to these needs, you know, Simone Weil talked about, you know, the the, the needs of the soul, uh, and there are material needs that are quantifiable, and of course we can sort of identify those, but then there are these other needs that, because perhaps we can't quantify them, because our different traditions speak of them in different ways we can't quite get at, but are still vital, and, you know, they, they are important, I think we don't, we've ignored them, uh, essentially, but figuring out ways of, of, of satisfying to whatever degree possible those needs 
not just self-centrically for ourselves, but again, for our households, our families, our communities, and making sure this is something that is available, not just to those who have the financial wherewithal to be able to practice moments of silence or, or you know, even to escape the, the rhythms of the gig economy, but to somehow create a world in which more people can partake of, of these life-giving uh, and restorative practices. So all of that is very airy, I realize, and abstract, and it doesn't have a policy proposal attached to it. But um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, I suppose. Thank you. Yeah. And I won't add anything except to just underline the point that what we're working toward here is not just for ourselves, but yes, for yeah, others. Who, uh, so thank you so much. This has been a really enlightening conversation. I have been really looking forward to it and it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure as well. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.